thanks for downloading the audio podcast of this week's sermon. We pray you'll be blessed and encouraged with the words you hear. Well, I've been exploring lately uh, uh, what it means to live life as God intended it to be. Have you ever thought about that? Are we living our lives as God intended us to live our lives? In Acts chapter uh, 17, verse 28, we're told that it's in Him, in God, in Jesus, that we live and move and have our very being. And so I've been thinking about that and I've been looking at three dimensions uh, of the essence of, of this life in Him. Uh, there's probably more, but uh, just to mention uh, one or two or three. Uh, firstly, I want to remind you this evening that this life that we've been given in him, in reality, uh, is eternal life. Amen, someone says, and amen to that. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that you may know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And I hope that's your experience tonight. And if it's not, it can be. It can be. You can know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And then you will, you will know that you have eternal life. You'll have that assurance. And I hope you realize that eternal life doesn't just begin sometime in the future. When Jesus returns and we're raised from the grave. But eternal life is the very life of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit lived in us and through us right now. Right now. And it's the present personal possession of all who believe in Jesus. And Paul testified, and we'll, uh, uh, we'll read from Galatians in just a moment, but in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Eternal life. That's one dimension of the life that we have in Christ. Eternal life. I hope you understand that. But as uh, Jimmy Cricket, do you remember Jimmy Cricket, the Northern Ireland comedian? He used to say, come here, come here, there's more. There's more. Because when we came to know Jesus, we not only received the free gift of eternal life, but Jesus also promised that uh, while we live out this life now, in the here and now, we can experience abundant life. Abundant life. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, you know it well. He said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly, abundant life. And listen, all believers have eternal life, amen? But not all believers experience abundant life. And sadly, many of God's children seem to be content to live a sort of a, an adequate uh, Christian life. And if we're actually experiencing uh, 
the, the spiritual abundance that is promised by God, we would be living a, a, a life not found in, in pleasure and not found in performance, not found in possessions, but a life characterized by real joy that's not dependent on circumstances and real peace that can be present in every situation and circumstance and real hope that is a deep, settled conviction based on the truth of the word of God. Eternal life. Abundant life. But tonight uh, I want to turn your attention to one more dimension of life as God intended it to be for us. The very practical reality of how we can experience eternal and abundant life. And in truth there's only one way that we can do that. We can't do it ourselves. We have to be empowered and we have to be led by the Holy Spirit. And that's the Spirit-led life. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, if you would, in your Bible. I hope you brought your Bible with you. We're going to do a little study tonight. It's always good to bring your Bible to church, whether it's an electronic one or it's a, uh, an old one like I've got here. Uh, make sure you bring the Word of God with you to, to church. So Galatians chapter 5, we're just going to read the last portion of chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. Uh, In my Bible, the NIV, it's uh, entitled, Life by the Spirit. And Paul's writing and he he says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you don't want, so that you do not, you do not what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious: sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And then if you want to turn over in your Bible to Romans chapter 8, book of Romans chapter 8, I'm not going to read it, we will read it though as we go through the next, uh, uh, next two hours or so, but uh, uh, turn to Romans chapter 8 and uh, we'll do a little, little exposition of what the Apostle Paul has to say about the Spirit-led life. But let me just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a precious, uh, holy word. We thank you, Lord, for this ancient word. And as this ancient uh, written word becomes a spoken word here tonight in our presence by your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you make it a living word that it will reach into our very hearts and transform us as has already been prayed in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, before we really get into uh, the exposition of the word of God tonight, uh, I want to caution you. I want to caution you that there are many, uh, plenty of counterfeits uh, for how to live the Spirit-led life. And I want to just briefly suggest a few. Uh, And like me, you may have occasionally 
slipped into these ways of living the Christian life. The Bible teaches us, doesn't it, that Satan is a master counterfeiter trying to pass off on undiscerning people a version of Christianity that might appear to be the real thing. But how sad it would be to eventually stand before God someday and to hear him declare that your experience of Christianity was a counterfeit. You know, some people try to live the Christian life thinking that it's all about observing a, a certain set of, of the right rules. You know, do this and, and, and don't do that. And there are many people whose view of the Christian life is just a list of do's and don'ts. And worse than that, they want to pass it on to other people and tell other people what they should do and what they shouldn't do. But you know, that's simply the Old Testament law warmed up and brought into the Christian church. And the problem with living by rules is that it can lead to legalism and traditionalism. And legalism is any attempt to please God based on what we do in the flesh. And God has pronounced his own verdict on on living this way in Isaiah 29 verse 13. Their worship of me is made up, he says, only of rules taught by men. And then there's some Christians who try to live out their faith by following formulas. And they're everywhere. You know, three roads to answered prayer, four steps to spiritual success, five ways to walk in the Spirit, and you could go on. And there's at least two problems with formula faith, as I call it. First, it can lead to a mechanical sort of Christianity, you know, ticking off the boxes, ticking them off, ticking them off. And secondly, this way of living out our faith doesn't usually last long. And another counterfeit way of living the Christian life that's very prevalent for some Christians is by seeking after deeply moving emotional experiences with God, constantly trying to live on a high. And the problem is that experiences don't last like that because we must eventually come off the mountaintop and resume life in the valley sometimes. And if our everyday life is focused on running after and seeking after experiences will just yo-yo in our, in our faith, going up one day and down the next, depending on the experiences of life that we have. And you know, while God can, can use conferences like, like Shine and, and others that we can attend, he can use camps, like uh, you, young people are going to their camp, he can use mission trips, he can use dynamic speakers that, that sometimes move us, but they alone can't sustain our faith. But perhaps the most prevalent of all the faulty and counterfeit ways in which we try to live our faith is by what I would call coasting, uh, sort of a cruise control Christianity. Now, many of the modern cars these days have cruise control. You just set it and you just hold on to the steering wheel and if you're an automatic car, you just, you just cruise. You don't have to think about it. Cruise control Christianity. Settling into a mediocre, lukewarm, adequate, but not abundant, not really spirit-led Christian life. And I want to be clear that none of these ways come close to living the spirit-led life as God intends for us to live. Uh, I want to mention uh, just one more issue that I believe kind of clouds or, or confuses and can even lead us into a false sense of a spiritual life. 
And that's when we revert to using what some people have called Jesus jargon or Christian cliches. And they're everywhere. I'm not sure if it's a blessing or a curse that we have a preponderance to try and make the great truths of Scripture, God's holy word, fit onto a t-shirt or onto a car bumper sticker. And, and, and sometimes when I'm frustrated or I'm busy with the practicalities of life, I, you know, I, I appreciate being reminded of these transcendent and comforting truths like Jesus saves or God is love. Or even God is good all the time. And all the time God is good. And I am his witness. But it disturbs me that the gospel. Is surrounded by. A lot of cute cliches. Because the problem with cute little, uh, cute, cute little cliches. Is that they tend to cheapen. The things we actually want to say. They often presume to be clever. And claim to communicate. But often they have no substance behind them. And sometimes not even a basis in scripture. And when used as our expressions of Christian experience. Or worse still when we declare them into somebody else's life. They can hinder the gospel by inadvertently trivializing the most important issues of life. And many of us including myself. Sometimes just repeat the cliche without really thinking about what the words mean. And listen, the worst Christian cliches, one of my pet peeves, are the ones that rhyme. Such as, when God guides, God provides. Or if God brings you to it, you know what? God will bring you through it. Have you heard them before? I'm sure you have. Did you ever think that maybe God didn't bring you to it? But you brought yourself to it? Or maybe he did bring you to it, but he's not going to bring you through it because he wants you to sit in it for a while to, to learn something. And I could go on about praying a hedge of protection around people or not touching the Lord's anointed or, or how we say the Lord never gives you more than you can handle. Because here's the danger of cute little cliches when we use them. You and I can say the cutest right things about what living the Christian life is all about and yet our hearts can be far from God. And that's all we've got. That's all we've got to offer, a cute little cliche. So it's easy to fall into a superficial faith when our real need and and God's intention for us is to be living deep, deep into the spirit and to the things of God. Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 29, these people come near me with their mouth, their cute little cliches, and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. And let me quickly say that, you know, having said all that, there's some truth in each of those things that I've just said. Rules can be good. Formulas can be helpful. Exciting experiences with God can be, can be life-changing, Yes. But taken alone, they lead to a substandard Christian life because they tend to lead away from the the one person God has given us. Better than rules, better than formulas, better than experiences. God has given us the Holy Spirit to help us into the deep things of God. The reality is that living the Christian life is impossible if we try to live it without the Holy Spirit's leading and empowering. 
And the life of faith is impossible without the empowering and the filling and the leading of the Holy Spirit. When we read through Galatians 5, it's easy to ask the question, if it's easy for us to default into one or more faulty ways of living out our faith, how then can I live the Spirit-led life that God intends for me? And somebody has said that living the Christian life is like the difference between traveling in a car or on an electric train. And let me just illustrate that for you. A car runs on the principle of storage. You put fuel in the tank. And as you drive it, you burn up the fuel. And when you're out of fuel, you pull into the garage and you get more. So you run it again. And then you burn up more fuel. And then you get more fuel. And so you're constantly running and stopping and running and stopping and filling and refilling. An electric train, however, runs on what's known as the third rail contact principle. You have two rails on the outside that the train runs on, but there's also an electrified third rail. And as long as the train stays in contact with that electrified third rail, it'll go and go and go forever. Too many people think that journeying with the Holy Spirit is like riding in a car. You get filled up with the Holy Spirit. And then you run down your spiritual fuel one way or another. And so you get filled up again. And on and on it goes. And you're constantly up and you're constantly down and being filled and being emptied. And many of us do that. But that's not the Christian life of the New Testament. As we seek to live a spirit-led life, our job is to stay in contact with the Holy Spirit. Because he's the one who continuously provides the power that we need for effective Christian living. Christian pastor Dr. Robert Mounts once said, To be led, to to live in, and to live by the Spirit is the single most important lesson a believer can learn. And perhaps more than any other passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul's teaching in Romans 8 gives us a framework for living the Spirit-led life. So for the next, next couple of hours, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, if you would. Romans chapter 8. Paul uses the word Spirit, capital S, or Spirit, small s, in, in the book of Romans 20, over 21 times. At least 18 times to refer to the Holy Spirit more than in any of his other writings. And so... In Romans 8, we have Paul's fullest discussion on the Spirit-led life. And you'll see there in Romans chapter 8, it begins with no condemnation. And it ends, chapter 8 ends with no separation. And in between, there's no defeat for the believer. And there are two primary doctrinal truths to be found in Romans chapter 8. The doctrine of Christian assurance and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And Scholars have called Romans chapter 8 the heartbeat of what the scripture has to say about life in the spirit. The best news you could ever hear as a believer, I hope you, you understand this, is in the very first verse. Therefore there is now, there is now for the believer, no matter who you are, there is therefore now no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great news? 
Because it's the foundation, that's the foundation of the Spirit-led life. And that sentence, beginning with the word therefore, summarizes what Paul has previously said in chapter 7, where he basically said, in my mind I want to please God, but there is something in me that makes me want to do the opposite. Have you ever been like that? And over again, over again he says, that which I would do, I don't do. And that which I hate to do, I do. And I'm sure you understand that experience as I do. You know, in the morning we get up and we say, Lord, this is the day that you have made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. And I'm going to be your servant and I'm going to do your will today. And Lord, with your help, I'm not going to lose my temper. But we've lost it by nine o'clock in the morning over something. Lord, help me with my critical spirit today. And by half ten, we're slicing and dicing uh, someone over coffee or over tea break. Lord, help me not to gossip. But by the time we get to the afternoon, we've blown that as well. And the very things we said we, we, we were going to do, we don't do. And the things we said we would never do, we do. And some of us have probably lived that experience uh, even this past week. Maybe even already today. Amongst other things, Romans chapter 7 is Paul's autobiography, his own testimony of his experience as a Christian believer. And I'm glad that this great missionary teacher was able to be brutally honest about his own experience. He says that even though he was an apostle, he felt a struggle between his desire to please God and the pull of the flesh. And it describes a struggle that is part of our walk with God. But thank God it's not the whole story. But it is part of the story. Let's be honest. And that's why when Paul says in verse 24 at the end of that chapter, he says, wretched man that I am. He's not just talking about himself. He's talking about you. And he's talking about me. We struggle in so many different ways as believers. We struggle between what we know and what we actually do. We struggle between our better desires and our lesser desires. We struggle between what we know God wants us to do and what we would rather do. We struggle torn this way and torn that way. But that's part of what it means to live in this sin-cursed world. And although some people don't want to hear that truth and would rather hear a feel-good message from some teachers or other, which isn't the true word of God, but anyone who tells you that struggle shouldn't be part of the Christian's life as a non-biblical view of what it means to live the Christian life. It's a battle right to the death. And often there's nothing deeply wrong with what we're, you know, if we're going through a period of struggle. It's just part and parcel of what it means uh, to live in this world. And that's why Paul wants to reassure uh, his readers and, and to reassure us that no matter what, as those who are saved, he begins Romans chapter 8 with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, everything he says all the way through the end of the chapter is simply a restatement of no condemnation. Now notice, however, he's not saying... He's not saying that there is therefore no cause for condemnation. That wouldn't be true. Because you and I fail and we fall, we stumble, we get off in an arrow way. And sometimes we're barely making it as a Christian. Paul's not saying that there's no cause for condemnation in us. 
Because if God were to look down from heaven and were to judge us moment by moment, he'd find plenty of cause for condemnation in you and in me. Isn't that right? We may stumble and fall and make a thousand mistakes. We may sin and we do. We may go astray. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. Why? Because God has said it. He will not condemn those who are in him. When Jesus saved you, he didn't say he was going to take away every problem you're ever going to have to face. But he did say that in your problems, there is no condemnation. In your struggles, there's no condemnation. In your failures, there is no condemnation. Even in your going astray, there is no condemnation. God's not going to reject you because you struggle. Think about the prodigal son. Think about Peter, the disciple himself. These are beautiful word pictures of our experience as believers. There's no rejection for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will welcome you home again, all all who wander and and stray away, even those who have been living for a long time in the far country, uh, and even may be embarrassed because they've squandered the spiritual inheritance of God's kingdom. But as soon as they return to him and recommit to loving him, he's waiting with arms wide open, and there's no condemnation. Remember that beautiful story of the breakfast on the shore after the resurrection? The disciples came ashore and Jesus had cooked breakfast for them. And then, I don't know how long it was, but after a while, a little while perhaps, he took Peter aside. Peter who had just denied him three times. He took him aside. Did he condemn him? No, he didn't. He recommissioned him because he knew Peter's heart and he knows your heart and he knows mine. I mean, sometimes we make the same Dumb mistakes over and over again. But when we repent by God's amazing grace, our eyes are opened to see what we've done. And as we confess to God or to others even, God will graciously help us as we move forward again. And you may be be scared to death uh, because you think God's going to condemn you. But remember, God already knows everything about you and everything you've dreamed of doing. And he loves you anyway. The moment you say, I will arise and go to my father, in that very moment he'll say, kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. My child who was lost has been found. He was away, but but now, now he's come home. No condemnation. Listen, no condemnation also means that there's no punishment. Oh, Oh, there's discipline. And there's correction, which perhaps might be painful in the moment but when we fail or we fall God will help us to get back up and tell us where we went wrong if we're willing to listen and then put us back on the narrow road again see it's all about being in contact and willing to be led by the precious Holy Spirit and I don't know of any truth more important more satisfying more liberating than the great truth that for those who know Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Why? Because your sins are gone. Why? Because Jesus condemned sin by his death on the cross. Hallelujah. And Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said it quite simply, if our debt was paid, it was paid. And that's an end to it. No second payment can be demanded. Are you glad of that? I am. 
God's declaration, listen, God's declaration is condemnation of the sin in us, but not condemnation of us as sinners. Can I say that again? Condemnation, God's declaration is condemnation of the sin in us, yes, but not condemnation of us as sinners. Oh, the devil condemns us, doesn't he? Day and night, whispers in your ear, condemned, condemned. Look at what you said, you're condemned. Look at what you did, you're condemned. But God says, no condemnation, no condemnation. Who are you going to believe, the devil or God? You have to make up your own mind, but as for me, I'm going to believe what God has said, amen? All this is Paul's way of telling us that we should not lose our focus on what God has done, reminding us that as Christians, being in Christ, we're free from condemnation that we would otherwise rightly and justly deserve. We've been given freedom. The second verse says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's an amazing statement. When you go to Aldergrove or go to uh, the city airport or you, you see a big airplane at some airport, a big 747 Boeing jet sitting on the runway and you realize it weighs more than you can even imagine. And if you apply the law of gravity to that fact and add in passengers and luggage, it's a, you would think it's impossible for that plane to get off the ground and to fly. But when you look at the power of the engines and you watch it take off, you realize that there's a higher law in force that doesn't deny the law of gravity. It simply supersedes it. And the law of sin and death still works in our flesh, but it's superseded by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Amen. The spirit gives us freedom so that we no, listen, so that we no longer have to sin, which is to say that if we do sin, we have no excuse. We're choosing to do so because we don't have to live that way any longer. Great commentator, Bible commentator Warren Wearsbury adds this. He says, freedom doesn't mean that I am able to do whatever I want to do. That's the worst kind of bondage. Freedom means I've been set free to become all that God wants me to be. To achieve all that God wants me to achieve and enjoy all that God wants me to enjoy. And then notice In verse 3 of Romans 8, how Paul then adds, For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. What a, a liberating truth that is for us. We're not condemned for sin. And neither are we constrained to to, to sin because in Christ we're free to live the life that God intended us to live by his Holy Spirit. And amazingly then in the next verse, in verse 4, Paul says that Jesus is our sin offering in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. All of God's righteous requirements have been fulfilled in us And we no longer need to be dominated by sin because the moment we confess Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit came to dwell within us. And if we're serious about living the eternal, abundant, Spirit-led, Spirit-controlled life, the first thing we must accept is what God has already done and who we are in Him. And Neil Anderson 
In his book, Victory Over the Darkness, he says, understanding our identity in Christ is absolutely essential to our ability to live the victorious, spirit-led Christian life. And then following on from these great foundational truths that we need to accept and believe in Romans 5 through 17, Paul now moves to remind us of three gifts of the Holy Spirit that are given to every believer at the moment we're saved. And he's careful to tell us not to seek them, but rather to live the Christian life based on the fact that they've already been given to us. So look first at Romans 8 verses 5 through 8. What does Paul say here? Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is, is, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Paul's saying there's two ways of living in this world. We can either live according to the flesh that leads to death, or according to the spirit that leads to life. There's no alternative, there's no third, there's no in-between. And these two ways are, are, of living are diametrically opposed to each other, and they're constantly moving in opposite directions. Did you realize that when you first came to Christ, when you were first converted, when you were first saved, he gave us a new way of thinking in our mind? And the word mind here in these verses refers to a person's worldview, their point of reference for how they see everything else. It's how we make ethical and moral judgments about what's right and what's wrong. And it's 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 the grid through which we look at everything that happens around us and everybody, Christian and non-Christian. We all have a worldview whether we know it or not. There are basically only two views. Like I've said, there's the secular view, the humanistic worldview, and then there's the Christian or biblical worldview. In other words, there's a Christian way of thinking. There's a Christian way of speaking. There's a Christian way of behaving. And there's a Christian way of approaching the issues and the problems of life. And when we're saved, God give us a new mind that we might develop a thoroughly Christian way of thinking. You know, we don't talk much about this in evangelical circles because these days in many evangelical circles we tend to be much more heart-orientated and we speak more about loving God with our whole heart and nothing wrong with that. But remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And with all your strength. So to live this eternal, this abundant, this spirit-led life that God intends for us to live is having your mind constantly transformed. Paul says it again in chapter 12 of Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And there's only one way in which your mind can be transformed. It has to be filled with the word of God. By the careful, intentional, repeated, thorough study of the word of God. And God give us his living word so that it would be a spiritual change agent in our minds. So as we study it, it will change the way that we think. And as our thinking changes, so our life will slowly be transformed to live as God intends for us to live it. 
If you know Jesus Christ, the renewing of our minds ought to make a difference in every area of our living and our lives and radically affect the way that we approach uh, everything in life. There's no such thing as a purely private Christian faith. If it doesn't affect all of life, how can your faith be called truly Christian? Sometimes we silo our lives. That, that's our home life, and that's our, our, our married life, and, and that's our work life, and that's our sports life, and that's this life and that life. But it's all, it's all part of who we are as, as God's child. That means we don't need teachers, for example, who happen to be Christian. We need truly Christian teachers who will bring their faith into the classroom. We don't need businessmen who happen to be Christian. We need truly Christian businessmen who will let their faith in Christ shape every decision that they make. We don't need nurses who happen to be Christian. We need truly Christian nurses who will treat patients differently because they know Christ. We don't need police officers who happen to be Christian. We need police officers who will express their Christian faith seven days a week. There's a a phrase that was coined some years ago, garbage in, garbage out. It was actually first used in the field of computer science. It's not telling in itself. And it really expresses a biblical principle. When we allow garbage into our minds, what's going to come out? Garbage. If we allow godly thoughts in, godly behavior will follow. Proverbs 23 and 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Paul simply, or put simply, that means that we are what we think. Because every thought carries with it a spiritual implication. Our thoughts either feed the flesh, which leads to death, or they feed the spirit, which leads to life and to peaceableness. And Satan, as I've said, has declared a war on every believer, and the battlefield is in the mind. And so Paul tells us to be vigilant in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We demolish arguments, he said, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Don't let any thought in without first capturing it. If it's a good one, if it's a godly one, Let it in. But if not, demolish it with the truth of the word of God. And did you know you'll start thinking about what? Did you know you'll start thinking about what you're exposed to the most? And that's why studies have linked violence on TV and movies and video games with violent behavior. And if it's true that we need to think about what we think, we also need to watch what we watch and listen to what we're really listening to. And right now, I have no doubt. Right now, you have a series of thoughts flowing through your mind. Some of you are thinking and wondering about when this sermon will end. (laughs) But unfortunately, too many of us allow stuff to come in without thinking about what we allow ourselves to think about. We're, We're sloppy in that regard as Christians sometimes. And perhaps for too long, we've, we've been given new minds We've been given new minds, but we are willing to check them at the door when we leave church on a Sunday. And who we are during the week does not reflect 
who we are in him. In other words, we must let the mind of the master be the master of our minds. As Philippians 2 and 5 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But then Paul goes on to say, look at verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. In you. And what Paul uh, is saying here is that as believers, we don't need to receive the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. We simply need to respond to the Spirit. And we've already received. And the issue is not getting more of the Holy Spirit, but allowing Him to have more of us. You know, I've known Christians who just clamor for more and more teaching. They just run after meetings and they run after services and they run after conferences and they can't wait to, 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 to go to these places. I want to tell you something. God's not going to reveal anything new to you from his word until you start obeying what he's already revealed to you. That's the meaning of the the phrase, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. The seed of death has been planted in our body because of the fall, because of original sin. And that's why our bodies eventually wear out and we die. Our physical flesh is slowly wasting away, yet God has placed life, eternal life, abundant life, the spirit-led life, resurrection life within us by his Holy Spirit dying on the outside yes yet you life on the inside and we live forever and that's the wonder of the gospel where death once reigned now life reigns within and death is not the end for the child of God Christians die like everybody else but when our body is laid to rest our spirit goes to be with Jesus and even that's not the end the Holy Spirit who presently lives within us is like a down payment on God's future deliverance when Jesus returns and our body will be raised from the dead immortal and incorruptible eternal never more to die hallelujah so the crux and I'm getting to an end here the crux of living the spirit filled life is Beautifully captured in Paul, by Paul rather, in the next few verses, 12, 13, and 14. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if, the spirit, uh, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God, the sons of God. And verse 13 here Uh, has been called the most important single verse on the spiritual life uh, in the New Testament. Verse 13, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. There's God's part, if by the Spirit. But there's also our part. You put to death 
Spiritual growth comes when we do our part as we rely on the Holy Spirit's leading and enablement. And and true spirituality is, is neither entirely passive, to use another cliche, let go and let God, nor is it entirely active. I've got to do this all by myself. So let me ask you as we bring this to a close, is the spiritual life dependent on God or is it dependent on me? Think about that for a moment. Is it dependent on God or dependent on me? The answer is yes. Positionally, this has already been done. Galatians 5 and 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. It's been done positionally. We're in Christ. But experientially, as we live it out, we must also do something. Colossians, Paul took the Colossians in chapter 3 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And what this means is that we must apply by faith what God has already done in fact. It's not an either or, but rather a both and it's a beautiful balance where you and I can choose to live the life God intends for us and God has given us the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us in that life and while we must do it by being led by the Spirit the Holy Spirit also chooses to present his life through us and so these it's a beautiful complementary not contradictory truth we must live it but it's God who works in us to do it he has his role and we have our responsibility We could say it this way, I I can't do it. I can't live this life that God intends without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit won't do it without me. So living the Spirit-led life is a moment-by-moment dependence on the Spirit. With a tough, put-to-death attitude towards the flesh. The word flesh might be understood to mean as a, as a, a little mnemonic, a memory thing, F-L-E-S-H, following long established sinful habits. That's what the flesh is, following long established sinful habits. And too often we fall back into flesh living instead of faith living. And as believers, we're someone who we, we, we never were before. So let's not live like we used to live. As Paul says in the second letter to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so to conclude, we're either busy living, we're either busy living the eternal, abundant, spirit-led life, or listen, we're just busy dying. For some Christians, it's a life of easy believism. But I want to tell you that the day is coming and maybe is already here. When our beliefs will be questioned and our convictions will be tested. You see, belief is knowing what you believe. Well, conviction is not only knowing what you believe, but knowing why you believe it. And many Christians today don't know, don't even know what they believe, sadly, much less why they believe it. And because of this, they're swayed every every which way and by every wind of doctrine instead of being led by the spirit of truth and the word of God. And so as we grow in the spirit-led life, we develop a Christian worldview We develop Christian character. We'll also have an increasing ability to discern the voice of God's Holy Spirit. 
And God knows these days we need to be discerning Christians. There's a lot of stuff out there. A lot of stuff out there that people get caught up in and they're not discerning by the word of God. That brings us back to our illustration of the car and the electric train. Just as one operates on a storage principle and the other on a contact principle, the whole question of the spirit-led life comes down to this. How consistently, day in and day out, are we staying in contact with the Holy Spirit? See, the spirit-led life will be consistent with the truth of God's word. The Holy Spirit won't lead us into anything that's contrary to the word of God. The spirit-led life will be consistent with, with his fruit, which Paul talked about to the Galatians, love, joy, peace, and so on. And the spirit-led life will be consistent with the character of Jesus Christ, his spirit of love and humility and meekness and service and obedience and submission and forgiveness. And just to contradict what I was saying earlier about Christian cliches, I'm going to leave you with one that makes the point of what I've been trying to say tonight. And it's this. And you've probably heard it before. If you were to be arrested tonight on your way home and you're charged with being a Christian, a spirit-led Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you, Lord, because we believe it to be true. God said it. I believe it, and that's all there is to it. But the truth really is, Lord, that you said it. And whether we believe it or not, it's still true. So, Father, we thank you for your word tonight. It's been a challenging word, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for laying it on my heart to share this word tonight. And I believe, Lord, that there are people here tonight who need to hear that and who will leave this place transformed in one way or another because of what your word has, has had to say. And more than anything, as God's people leave this place tonight, that they'll be in no doubt and they'll have that assurance that there is therefore now no condemnation. No matter what we've said, no matter what we've done, no matter how we've got off track, you're not going to condemn your children. Thank you, Lord, for your love that draws us back to yourself time and time again. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness of us, Lord. You know how, how frail we are. But Father, we thank you that even when we're not faithful, you are. And so Father, we thank you for that. So help us, Lord, to be that sort of person that your word tells us about. Those who know that they have eternal life. Those who are living that abundant life in Christ Jesus. And those that are being led by the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. And Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like any more information, have a look at our website at www.ballymoneyelam.com.